It's Friday. What more do you need to know? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. Like I said, it is indeed Friday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. David Heather, our, our trusted producer, is out of the office today. So we've got a little bit of a special show format. It's still Friday. It's still interview day. Mm-hmm. We've got a great interview today from Mike Olson, who works on our Million Dollar Portfolio product. But first, let's do some mailbags. We've got, a, got three mailbags here. Uh, let's start off with the first one. This email is from Mark. Mark writes, hey, guys, great show. I just bought my first stocks ever. Progressive. I did this based on Inside Value's recommendation and my own research. They had just paid their dividend and their 10K and conference call were going to happen the next day. Progressive is now up around 2%. I thought their annual report looked good. The company seems to be very good at managing risk and I like how they have a slight upper hand over other companies because they sell directly to the consumer, allowing for a higher margin like Geico. I think Progressive definitely has the potential to grow over the next few years. What do you guys think? David, what do you think? Got to applaud him for buying the first stock, right? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I, I mean, regardless how that turns out, that is, that's a great way to learn. Mm-hmm. Buy it. Make sure to, to record thoughts in an in investing journal of some sort. Know why you did it so that you can go back and look at it and evaluate mm-hmm. in retrospect. But that's a big deal. So, Mark, wait, where's our... There, there we go. Is. And the inside value. We had Joe Mager on a couple weeks ago. Well... Yeah. A very trusted mind We're there. big, big fans of Inside Value yeah. here. They've got a lot of financials in that, in that portfolio of recommendations. And best, one of the best performing, was, it was the best performing, yeah. wasn't over it? News, newsletter years. over the last five years, as seen in the Wall Street Journal. To get to Progressive. Yeah, now stop dodging the question. Get to the bur- Progressive. I, I like Progressive. I, I, like, I like the company. I think the stock is pretty attractively valued today. Um, in the inside value recommendation, I think they just recently re-recommended it also. Mm-hmm. They said, I believe they said it's the most, quote-unquote, hated stock amongst Wall Street analysts right now, which I don't really understand why. You look at the history of Progressive. They've been an innovative company with technologies, with being a direct insurer here. They've had good underwriting results mm-hmm. here. They don't have the flashy investing team like a Markel or a Berkshire Hathaway, but a fine investing team there, good underwriting. I think it's a good model, and I, I am not one of the people who believe that car insurance and progressive is going to go the way of the dodo bird because of driverless cars. Robots. Robots yes. are going to kill not everything. I, I think one of the reasons that Wall Street may not like progressive is, is I think progressive has kind of a history of not really playing Wall Street's game. Progressive does what it does, runs its business, and kind of says, hey, hey Wall Street, you know. You, you can figure out. Mm-hmm. You can figure out what we're doing. Although they have made some concessions here and there, I, I think they they give some monthly reports that help bring greater clarity. I think Progressive is a great business. Um, it's actually probably one that I should look at more closely, particularly given uh, the the confidence that Inside Value and uh, Joe Mager has shown in it. Uh, I do like the direct insurance businesses. We've talked about this a few times on the show. We talked about it in particular in terms of Allstate and how Allstate is still very much an agent-driven business even though they have the the smaller insurance brand in there. And for WTMIers that that may not recognize right off, Geico, uh, very direct insurance um, business, that's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, of course. Um, That's a great business. And it's probably the best comparable is Progressive. Right. Um, and I think they're both they're both great, well-run insurers. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons that it gets on Wall Street's radar for being a hated stock is that it does look pricey 
on the face of it compared to some other insurance companies. But like you said, Geico is really the best comparison here, and that's not a public company. So right, you can't, can't say, that oh, the Geico multiple is this and progressives. We can't say that. So yes, there's the insurance business, which is now up under all states. So we don't get a clear picture about what insurance is looking like either. So maybe the fact that there's not a really clean comp makes it a little but, bit harder. But here. also, when when is Wall Street like so hung up on on multiples that they that they hate a stock just because of that? I don't know. May, maybe sometimes. But anyway, bottom line, Mark, we think I I think I can speak for both of us. Good pick in yeah, progressive. Definitely. Congratulations again on buying that first stock. Cool. Before I go to the second question, I forgot to mention right off the top, it's the email address that gets everybody to us, gets these emails to us. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. We love getting these emails. Number two comes from Matthew. Matthew starts out with, with a little bit of House of Cards because we had talked about this on the show. There's a, there's a character on House of Cards named Raymond Tusk. And Matthew, I, I forget who he was comparing Raymond Tusk to. Uh, blank fine. Blank fine. Right, 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 right. And we said, no, it's probably not blank fine. We think it's Warren Buffett. And at the time, I had not started the second season of Mm -hmm. uh, House of Cards. Now that I start watching the second season of House of Cards, uh, the Buffett connection is waning for me. Both Midwest billionaires, but not quite in personality here. Yeah, so so Matthew writes, um, does the real-life Buffett have some greedy, president-wrangling, bird-murdering evil side that only insiders know about? Is it possible in real life to become a billionaire if you're just a nice guy? The story of Warren Buffett is more complicated than the, than the folksy, hamburger-eating, coke-drinking image that, that I think a lot of people have. But I, I, I don't think he's a bad person. Uh, and, and I don't think he's a, um, I, I don't know, a, a corrupt, a corrupt He's, person. He has to be a different person when it comes to the negotiating room. He just, there's no way he's, like you said, the folksy old man wisdom right. kind of guy. When you look at the actual deals, he's a ruthless negotiator just by looking at the numbers. I mean, the deals he gets are unbelievable, but it's not just, it's part of it because people want to say, well, we're doing business with Warren. But, I, but I also, I, I don't know that ruthless is necessarily even the right way to describe it. He just has such good timing mm-hmm. in terms of what he's doing. So when it, if you think back to those great preferred stock investments that, that Berkshire, that Buffett got during the financial crisis, I don't think it was he had to get into a room and beat people down. I, I think in the case of in the case of Goldman Sachs, in the case of GE, it just kind of came out, and, and Buffett said, "Well, here's what I'll give you." Yeah. And it wasn't a, "I'm gonna I'm gonna work you down until you until you." This is the offer. I'm Warren Buffett. We have a lot of money. We can give you money. We can give you market confidence. Here's the price. Same with Bank of America as well. 2011, right. exactly. a very tough time for them. I guess the one outlier in the recent years has been the Heinz deal. He did get a pretty good deal on that. He has, he has 50, they have 50% equity in the company, and then they have the preferred coupon. You could say that's a pretty good deal for him. Yeah, but again, the question is, is, is how, how much of that was a, was a hard backroom negotiation versus... Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's, let's get to the rest of Matthew's question. <laughs> he actually I, had a question. I, I, really, I really like this. He, he talks about the future. He said, recently read about how Intel, and maybe others, employs a full-time futurist to help predict social, economic, technological trends. Your thoughts on the following future possibilities, yes or no, will the following become enough of a reality in 10 to 15 years to significantly significantly affect the related business? Here we go, David. Number one. Are you answering too? Sure. Okay. Of course. 
Number one, driverless cars make collision insurance obsolete. He refers specifically to Geico here, among others. 10 to 15 years, no way. I'm going no as well. Number two, global food culture shifts, dramatically reducing sugary drink consumption. And he refers here to Coke in particular, although you could probably bring up Pepsi here as well. United States, maybe a little bit global, no way. I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes because the U.S. is such an important market. Um, I don't think it would kill Coke. The Chinese either. consumer not drinking Coke? I, I'm, no, no, no. I'm saying primarily the U.S. market okay. change could, could have an impact. All right. Number three, home 3D printing significantly disrupts shipping of physical products. Thinking about FedEx here. No. I'm going no as well. Number four, online and mobile payment players offer retail banking and loan services. Thinking about PayPal, eBay's PayPal. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the financial industry has been the same way for 100 years, and it'll probably continue to be similar in some respects, but there will be new players kind of offering better, more innovative services. I got to say yes as well, and I- I'm gonna, I'll broaden it out, not just mobile online payment companies, but, but also maybe a Facebook, yep. maybe a Google, getting into that. Not owning a retail bank, as we talked about before, but having the services and working with a white-label bank. Number five, low-cost online higher education gains real legitimacy, significantly disrupting bricks-and-mortar colleges. David? What do you think? That's a tough one. Um, Next 10 to 15 years, no, but 50 years, yes. What do you think? I'm saying no and no. I think think the on-site college experience is a good one, offers a lot more than the online Still touting that Ivy League pedigree you got. It doesn't have to be about Ivy League. It doesn't have to be about Ivy League. Number six, routine medical checkups are completely free of human doctors. Thinking about IBM on this one. Sure, why not? Nobody I'm, likes going to the doctor, so I'd, I'd like a free machine. I am I'm going with no. Gotta love that turn your head and cough. <laughs> Number seven. Do you love it? No, I don't. Number seven. Actually, my, my doctor doesn't do it. Uh, funny side story. I'm, I'm at a great medical practice, uh, kind of a startup type of medical practice called One Medical. And, uh, and, and my doctor finished his checkup, and I said, so no, turn your head and cough. He said, no. He, he said, I'm very... Um, results oriented he looks at the research and he said what you end up with with that particular test are more false positives and more unnecessary tests and, and all kind of other stuff than actually identifying there you go. more problems Some free promotion for there one medical for one medical great great company there number 7 battery powered vehicles outnumber gas powered vehicles and he's thinking about tesla that would be on the positive side and exxon mobil getting hurt um Outnumbered in the next 10 years, no, but it'll be a very significant portion, I think. Just because cars stay on the road for so long now, the turnover of cars wouldn't be able to do, uh, take a majority in that short period. Fully battery-powered, no. But if you consider, if you, if you loop hybrids in there, I'll go with yes. Okay. I'll, I'll go with yes. I'll go with the outlier. Uh, number eight. Also, he said 10 to 15 years. I'll go 15 years on that one. Number eight. Man-made machine will become self-aware. No. No, unfortunately. Unfortunately not. I wish, but no. Uh, Number nine, alternative energy sources, wind, solar, and hydro produce more power than fossil fuels. Not 10 to 15. Sorry. What do you think? No. We'll ask the the energy guys. Yeah. Submit that to Digging for Value. We'll pass it on to them. Yeah, the Digging for Value show, that's that's another show that you can tune into here that's uh, on a weekly basis, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Number 10, final one, major low-wage employer becomes unionized. He's thinking specifically about a Walmart or McDonald's. 
Gotta go no. Can't see Union sticking out. We're agreeing. Too much We're agreeing way too much. We, we hang out too, too often. I've got to go no on that one as well. Matthew, that is a great question, great list of, of scenarios there. Let's finish off. Third question here. Uh, this comes from Alejandro Sanchez. Alejandro asks, would, or actually he's got more of a statement here to start with. He said, would like to point out that the tax you mentioned, this is that bank tax that's in both the Republican and Obama's yep. proposed budget, that are proposing for banks is too big to fail, is not randomly targeting them, as you stated, or to just get some tax revenue. It is being proposed because of what they did and how their past behavior caused, or at least was a significant reason for the recession. Therefore, due to major risks they pose to the financial system, the proposed tax makes sense. I would agree with you the unintended consequences, banks hiding assets, for instance, would be undesirable. There needs to be a way to assure that private institutions in the hands of few individuals, which sometimes can do stupid things, with potential to cause worldwide crisis, cannot do it again. Or what do you think? Now, I kind of agree with this. It's not randomly targeting in that, yes, this is a group that was... um, they brought itself to the limelight mm-hmm. because of the financial crisis. However, we talked about this a little bit because I, I said to you that one of the ways you could justify this sort of tax, you could call it a too-big-to-fail bailout tax and essentially say that because these banks are still too big to fail and would need to be bailed out if we had a similar crisis again, mm-hmm. you tax them extra and you say we're taxing them because this, they, they, they cost us. They, Almost they, like an cost. FDIC bailout fund. Right. The problem is, and this is, this is what you wisely said to me, the problem is, is that then you institutionalize the idea of bailing out those banks. So without having that, then you're just saying we're basically randomly taxing this group. Not that that is totally uh, out of the realm of, of thought for, for the government to do. I mean, you think about tobacco companies yep. get, extra, get extra taxes on them. Um, and their products get extra taxes on them. Uh, alcohol, liquor companies, gaming companies. But, but, I mean, the question is, is a bank re- really in that, in that kind of group? I mean, th- those are kind of sin taxes in my mind. I don't know. I still stick with the idea that I think this is good, po- good politics and a way for the government to raise money. Yeah. As opposed, as opposed to truly a, this is, this is a reasonable tax that... Unless I think it probably is the first, because they're too big. They can't explicitly do that because then... So it is have, because of the bailout, but they just can't say it's because of a bailout. I, right. I mean, because you can't make it explicit because then you get to a... Even though Fannie and Freddie weren't explicit, essentially everyone knew that they would step in. You can't do that. It encourages reckless behavior. But I mean, and again, we think back to TARP, the, the TARP fund that was... That's been paid back, Right. Hasn't really been, and, and well, the, the actually the, the part of it that hasn't been paid back, uh, or the biggest part of it that hasn't been paid back, has come from the auto companies, right? Mm-hmm. So, so maybe we should be thinking about not let's put an extra tax on the financial companies because that's obvious, mm-hmm. like that's that's the good politics. Let's tax the let's tax the auto companies extra because they did stupid things. They needed a bailout. Now you're campaigning. And, well, I'm just saying. I'm I'm not going to win any elections on that stance. Let's not tax the banks. Let's tax the auto companies instead. I'm going to lose every election hands down on that platform. But, I mean, it's, again, I just, I think it's good politics in there um, and good in kind of a quote-unquote kind of way. Can we both agree that too big to fail, I mean, I don't want to get into a huge discussion here. Too big to fail still does exist. I mean, Bank of America couldn't fail today. Right. So it's still. I think the only way to 
have getting rid gotten rid of too big to fail was to break banks up. I think that's the only real way to do it. I don't know. I, I like to think that there's there's a way to to kind of wall off a bank, allow it to be allow its assets to be to be transferred with, without causing a bank run, yeah. uh, and kind of wind it down. Um, as opposed to, or, or distribute the assets into play, into good homes for them. Um, I like to think that that's a possibility. I don't know whether we've gotten there yet, but I'll tell you what. I'm glad it's not my job to figure it out. I, and, and and I should I should point out, yeah, that's that's a good point. I should point out that, that the U.S. this whole too big to fail thing in the U.S. this isn't like a, a, an isolated thing in the U.S. Actually, the banking system in most other countries. More concentrated. That's, yeah, more concentrated, and, and they don't call it too big to fail, but if you called it too big to fail there, that's been the banking system for a long time. This whole distributed thousands of banks thing in the U.S. is actually yeah. pretty unique. Going on to the interview, we've got an interview today with Mike Olson. He's a senior uh, analyst with our Million Dollar Portfolio product. Uh, we talked a little bit about Berkshire Hathaway. Let's go ahead and cut away to that interview right now. Hey folks, I'm here today with Mike Olson, Senior Analyst with the Million Dollar Portfolio here at Motley Fool. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a big week for lovers of Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. The love fest is on. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the shareholder letter out, plenty of good reading material. Yes. But let's talk about the bear case at Berkshire Hathaway. There are a few scenarios that people are concerned about when it comes to Berkshire stock. What do those look like? Right, so I think... Berkshire is very interesting for the fact that it is one of the most widely loved mm-hmm. and sort of serially unappreciated stocks. And okay. I think that kind of owes to its success because there's sort of a cadre of folks who always says that say that on account of Berkshire's size and its success, the likelihood that it will continue to outperform the S&P is accordingly limited just okay. because have sort of a law of large numbers effect going on. The second, and it's sort of part and parcel to that, is that Warren, for all of his wisdom, folksy aphorisms, and coke consumption, will someday or another not lead Berkshire. And accordingly, you know... The coke count- isn't the fountain of youth, after all. Right. Coke is not the fountain of youth, after all. And indeed, its returns will decline because he's just such a remarkable al- capital allocator. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last is that uh, Buffett has said he will repurchase shares of Berkshire at 1.2 times book value. And so there's sort of a school of thought that goes, you know, if Buffett will buy at 1.2 times book value, why should I pay any more than that? Okay, so we've got the, the fact that Berkshire has just gotten too big, mm-hmm. the fact that Warren Buffett won't be around for forever, and the fact that the shares are just trading above where Buffett had said he'd buy the right. stock at exactly. Berkshire. Mm-hmm. Are these scenarios that keep you away from the stock? No. Uh, I personally am in spoiler the shop <laughs> of the stock. And uh, also, spoiler, we do own it in MDP. Um, as for the matter of it being too big of a company, I, I think that this kind of misses the broader point. Uh, and the first being that Berkshire as an entity has dramatically evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. And at its core now are two sort of industrial capital or regulated capital intensive businesses which have enormous reinvestment needs and they continue to earn very attractive returns on capital and equity. Those are Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the largest rail in America, and Mid-American Electric Holding Company. That is their utility business. Uh, Both of these businesses 
should be able to reinvest in them at very attractive rates of return for decades running. Mm-hmm. And on the matter of its insurance operations, you also have Geico, where I would argue it's that... pretty good business. Pretty good business. And I would also argue that as Geico grows larger, its ability to continue to grow actually increases because what happens is it realizes cost advantages on account of its scale. Mm-hmm. That allows it to pass savings along to its customers and in turn allows it to write less profitable business at a still attractive rate of return. Okay. So you put all this together and basically I think we can both agree that Berkshire has kind of an above average stable of businesses which in aggregate should earn pretty attractive returns on capital and equity. Okay, I'll buy that. Sure. Um, speaking of buying it at, mm-hmm. at MDP, uh, you guys have rated this uh, rated Berkshire a buy and mm-hmm. given it a, a a price, a valuation of one hundred and forty seven dollars. Yeah. So, in uh, assigning a price like that, mm-hmm. what kind what kind of returns assumptions are associated with that? Because you can say that something is fairly valued or, or undervalued in right. a theoretical basis, but investors still need to know. What kind of returns can I expect from that stock? Right. I think the way we sort of think about Berkshire at MDP is we kind of think of it as an equity bond. And that sort of goes to the idea that you have a very attractive, stable, relatively low-risk businesses, which should modestly outperform the S&P. The other thing you have to consider, in addition to the fundamentally attractive growth prospects and return characteristics of its businesses, If Berkshire doesn't have any use for its capital, it can simply reinvest it in the market. So on a de facto basis, it should be able to grow at or above the market rate of return. Um, We believe that on account of the quality of the businesses and its growth prospects, it should outperform the S&P by just a little bit over passage of time. I kind of hew to the idea or the belief that Berkshire uh, that Buffett also holds, which is that in the good years, it's not really going to blow out of the waters. You don't have a collection of growth businesses here. But in aggregate, these are very attractive businesses, which I think we can argue 20, 30 years from now will look much the same as they do now. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back. That was uh, great to hear from Mike. David, let's finish off today, finish off the week as we always do in the Twitter sphere. What's our tweet? Our one and only tweet is from Brooks Running. By the way, Berkshire Hathaway Company. Yes, Brooks it running. Is. So much Berkshire. So much Berkshire. Who gave you your first piece of running advice? Nominate a coach who inspires you for the ins- hashtag inspiring coaches. Running advice? My best at running advice was to not run. <laughs> who, gave you, who gave you that advice? It's, it's, it's hard. It takes the wind out of you. What was the best advice? But who, gave, who gave you the advice? I don't know. Someone. someone yeah. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> I, I get, in terms of being inspired to run, I do a lot of running. In terms of being inspired to run, that was my mom. This was just about five years ago. She decided to run the Las Vegas Half Marathon, and it wasn't sort of a, a request. It was, hey, you should run this with me. So, uh, But as far as advice goes, I had a great running community when I lived back in uh, Las Vegas, a few guys out there gave me some, I, I can't even say all of the advice, just lots of great advice. But going from running to investing, I think just as I've benefited a lot from having mentors and, and people who have been able to give me advice on running, I think it's just as important, if not more important, in investing. David, who gave you your first investing advice? Oh, wow, my first. Uh, first. Roommate in college. What was the it advice? Was, it was more of an advice what not to do. Okay. He was trading uh, FX currency and 
and lost his shirt. So, oh, so, so did he was, give you the advice, advice or did you just watch it? It was him? a learning advice, but he now realizes that uh, he made <laughs> This was errors. real life. Exactly. What about you? Well, my first interaction, my first major interaction with the stock market was in high school. We did a, a stock market game in, the, in my economics class, and that was, that was disasters, I think a lot of stock market games are, because it was all focused on... We three have, months. It's yeah, we have, we have three months. You pick a stock just randomly. There was no guidance as to how you figure out what to buy. So my first real advice on buying stocks came from The Motley Fool, mm. and, it was, and it was about accessing SEC filings, how to read them, what to take away from them. And I can remember reading the AOL, uh, the AOL Time Warner 10K back in whatever it was, two, 2000, I think wow. it was, before the crash. I read it. I had no idea what most of it meant. And I ended up buying AOL oh, and losing my <laughs> shirt. Um, but I was, I was at least able to say, well, here's where I can go to find information to figure out what's behind this company and what it does. Speaking of the Molly Fool, next Friday, we'll be running the full interview that you did with the guy who started it all, David Gardner. David Gardner. Talk about some good investing advice. Be sure to tune in next Friday as well. Great yeah. interview. This was, a, this was an interview I did uh, a few months ago, mm-hmm. um, but it is timeless. It's yep. timeless. So that'll be a really exciting interview. Cool. Well, that's the show for today and for the week. If you're not listening to us on iTunes, you can go there and find us. If you are, give us a rating. Let everybody else on iTunes know why they should be listening. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We will see you next week. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.